Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. There's a moment every year when I set about trying to solve a really big organisational challenge inside the Future Women business. So each time I ring Ruby Leigh Gatfield, who asks me a bunch of questions, she books meetings with other stakeholders, then she sends me an agenda and off we go. Ruby is Future Women's master facilitator. She's also head of research and insights and joined Future Women after working at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. In this episode, Ruby talks about how to facilitate a really great team meeting and she gives her insights into managing those sessions when there is conflict or when, as is often the case, she is the only woman in the room. Ruby Leigh Gatfield, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. You joined Future Women from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. What was your work there about? It's a good question. I found myself there after a career in public policy consulting. So started very young, working in the kind of human services sector, doing lots of research and um, I guess capacity building work with organisations. And that meant lots of field work, lots of interviews, lots of focus groups, lots of data analysis of various government programs. You're thinking anything from like a dementia-friendly program with Dementia Australia through to a domestic violence program with rugby clubs across New South Wales. So I was going out and doing all this field work um, and started to really build a portfolio in that Aboriginal affairs and domestic violence space. And I guess the domestic violence space really kind of sparked a passion or an interest with me just in terms of, you know, women's rights, gender equality, started to really just build my understanding of the policy sector in that space. And from there saw a job come up at WGR, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, which was really focused on building the capacity of employers across Australia on how to be better employers of women, how to be better at workplace gender equality. And so I worked there for just under two years and really got an understanding of everything that's out there in terms of the research, the data, the literature on gender equality in this country. And what were your key takeaways from that time? I mean, you went in idealistic. Yeah. And you came out feeling what? <laughs> it's not a trick question. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'm just interested because a lot of young women start in this space and mm. do um, want to make change. Mm. But the truth is life is so much more complicated, right? Yeah. And the data is pretty depressing. Like just the gender pay gap itself, which is something that Wajia calculates using the ABS data and you know, it's hovered around the same figure for over 20 years now. And so that's pretty upsetting. You see still only 20% of CEOs in Australia are women. That has improved very, very slowly. And so I guess that becomes disheartening. 
But the flip side of that is actually seeing all of the little projects that are going on that you don't really see in the media and all of the hard work that is going on. And I really found that particularly in the research and consulting space, just how many pilot programs are being funded and often sadly canned. But there is so much good stuff and so much evidence slowly being built. And I guess another big takeaway was just the data that this country has. Like it seriously is world class. Um, There's not many other countries collecting as much data as we have in this space. I think there's a lot more that could be done. There's a a lot of missing intersectional data, but like it's quite impressive the potential that that data has for informing how they build policy, I think. I had Danielle Wood in the studio a minute ago before you arrived. I wish I'd kept the two of you (laughs) in the studio to to discuss this stuff. Um, But the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because you're an extraordinarily good facilitator. You're excellent at bringing together a bunch of people in a room to either understand something better or to get a result. And a lot of our listeners are leaders starting out in their leadership career. And I thought it'd be valuable to explore a little bit about how you go about doing that. So what do you think makes a good facilitator? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I mean, I think you have to start with purpose. Like you have to know what you're pulling these people together for. Like every activity you plan, the entire agenda should be so intentional and so thought through. So I think that's where you start. What is it that you're trying to really get out of this session or are you wasting time? And who needs to be in the room? Thinking hard about that is just the first place. But beyond that, in terms of on the day when you're facilitating, there's a whole range of things I could go through really. Like firstly, your role is to be the facilitator, right? So you're not there to lecture, you're there to gain people's perspectives. You're trying to draw that out of people. You're trying to make sure you're giving voice to everyone in the room. You're trying to get to the hard stuff, like get to the divergent points of view, call them out, like name what's tricky and actually have facilitate that conversation in a way that's, I mean, that leads to my second point, I guess, is in creating a really safe space. It's such a cliched term, but creating a non-judgmental space where people feel like someone wants to listen to them, (laughs) they want to be heard, um, they feel like they can say something without judgment. I think another big one as a facilitator is flexibility. You can plan the perfect day, the perfect agenda, all these activities, but on the day, things change, the conversation evolves, you have to pivot, you know, a topic comes up that you'd planned for 3pm, you can't be rigid and say, no, no, we'll talk about that at (laughs) 3pm. You just have to run with it and find a way to be flexible on your feet. And part of being able to do that is, I think the other big thing is knowing your stuff. Like you have to have some degree of knowledge of the problem, of the content. And a lot of that is in the preparation. So having conversations beforehand, getting a sense of the views that are going to come to the table already, making sure that you kind of know the content you're trying to communicate to an extent that if things start to get tricky, start to be derailed, or there's problems that really are hard to answer that you know enough that you can actually guide that conversation in a way that's more meaningful than just very surface level kind of facilitation. Because we've all had that kind of facilitator that they don't actually know the content. Like if you hire an external to come into the room and we'll do a work staff workshop with your team to whatever it is, a strategic planning day, and you realise they don't know anything about this company, they don't actually know what the problems and the barriers are, it becomes immediately obvious and then you're just all time wasting, right? So you need to know your stuff. There's so much in what you just said. I know. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna try and um, step through it. Yep. So, you do two things with future women. One is facilitate, 
big problems that I might identify. And then two is facilitate really tough conversations around gender with men. So taking to the first one, which we're today in Melbourne to work on, I wake up after a three-week holiday and say, this is going to be a big piece of our year. I don't know how to solve it. Ruby, can you facilitate a one-day session with these 10 people? What do you do after I give you that task? (laughs) I go, ah. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And then you sort it out. (laughs) What do I do? I think you will have noticed that I say to you, can you tell me in one sentence what you want to get out of this? Like I really try and crystallise, as I said, the point of the conversation. And I think from there you can start to flesh out and that's where you start to consult whoever's going to be coming. So what does everyone there want to get out of it? What are the points of interest for each person in the room? And really make sure that you're giving space to enable them to talk about that. And that's where you start to flesh out some form of an agenda for the day. But I also try and keep in mind, like, how do you keep people engaged? It, to, to speak on a topic for a whole day when it's tricky stuff is, you know, people want to go to their phones, they want to jump out, whatever happens. So it's also about being, as I said, really intentional about the activities you plan. So for example, tomorrow, there'll be butcher's paper out, there'll be post-its notes out, there'll be times that I'm asking people to walk around the room. There's going to be ways to shift the energy in the room, stand up, move over here. So just really being aware of people's energy in the room and planning that beforehand, not winging it, um, I think plays a big part. And I guess another thing is a lot of this stuff takes a bit more creativity than I guess I realised when I first started in this work. It's easy to kind of go, oh, these are the questions for the day and let's just run through them as a sitting around the table together. But you just lose people in that. So... There's all sorts of creative ways that facilitators out there, they're getting Lego. I'm telling you to build what an ideal program looks like at Future Women Please in don't Lego. Please do that. Please do <laughs> not bring any Lego. I have done that with Legos. CEOs and you would be shocked what comes out. <laughs> or you draw, ask people to literally draw it or you offer them a whole range of strange picture cards and they pick out what resonates with them and you just see this kind of creativity come from that. But all of it's with intention. Like it's not just to throw out these activities for the sake of having a playful day. (laughs) It's to actually think about, okay, is the point of this session to brainstorm, open up ideas, find creative solutions? In which case, yeah, let's get our creative juices flowing in a new and different way. Or is the purpose to maybe do the opposite, consolidate our ideas, boil them down, have a quite serious conversation, in which case the format of that session would be quite different. Okay, so I've got a small team and I don't have a Ruby. Um, I'm going to facilitate my own Mm -hmm. um, problem. What advice do you have for me? Because I think many people listening to this have got a problem that their team is trying to solve. How do I go about a sort of a DIY Mm. facilitated half-day day session? I mean, it obviously would depend on the context, but I think, as I said, get creative with it, like flip things on their head. Like, what is the problem? You could just get people to start with that. Butcher's paper around the room, get everyone to write down what they think the problem is. And that could illuminate a whole lot of stuff. Everyone might think you're tackling a different problem here and that could help. 
I think a lot of that kind of interactive activity where you're getting people to walk around room, I always have butcher's paper out. I have millions of colourful textures and pens and post-its um, and thinking about firstly, what are your key questions you're trying to get out of the day? But then how can you draw that information out of people in a way that's not just me interviewing you and you on the spot having to come up with a response that, you know, that doesn't get us anywhere further than you're probably already doing. Do I need to go and find the stakeholders beforehand? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You need, I mean, there's a whole conversation around co-design. So the people who are involved in the problem and the solution should be a part of this. And that's where having an external facilitator can be both good and bad. Sometimes it's better to do it in-house. If you if it's just you and a small team at an office, like, you know, the depth of the problem, but make sure you're talking to the right people. Like the last thing you want to do is have people feeling excluded from one of these processes because it's only going to create more problems for you. What if I say to you, okay, I'm going to include everyone, but I've got a major problem with that head of that team on that part of the problem. I need you to manage that problem. What's your general approach to something? And I, and I note that I, that's not something you and I have worked together on, but mm. I assume it's something you've come up against. Yeah, I think often whoever you're doing this workshop for, you'll know who the problem person in the room is. Sometimes it's just calling it out in a way that's gentle. Yeah. 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 Like whether you know that John is just going to talk over everyone and that's his issue all the time, like call it out, like in some kind of humorous way, like yeah. that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not that they're a problem person in the room but it's the project that's an issue... I think there's, it goes a long way to have a conversation with someone beforehand, before they come to the room, have a private conversation, get a sense of, let them feel heard beforehand so that you can let other people be heard on the day. I think that's a big one. Yep. Um, what about, actually, you didn't see it coming. You, mm. You've done all the planning, you've done the stakeholder, but you've got, you're in the room. And as you say, anything can happen. It can be a bad day, something could have blown up overnight. And there's hostility in the room. What's your what's your go-to strategy for that, apart from butcher's paper <laughs> from and Lego? Paper. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it's this conversation we've been having lately around the North Star, I think. So coming back to the purpose, stripping it back to what are you trying to get out of this? Because most of the time people are not inherently hostile, inherently bad people trying to do a bad thing. Most of the time there is a common goal we can all try and work towards. So trying to call that out, make it clear what's the common objective here that we can at least all agree on, that we're trying to do good in some way, for whatever that is, that project, that client, the bottom line, something that's collectively we can agree on and just using that as the North Star that at least there can be some consensus to build on from there. All right, let's go to the work you do in teaching men gender literacy. Hmm. Um, so just for context, Ruby works over two days with men from senior levels, mid-levels, junior levels, often fully online, sometimes in person, can be anything from 10 to 30 in the room. And as a lifelong advocate for um, feminist values and gender equality, she stands in that space um, often directly opposed to the views of some of the men in the room. So, Ruby, when you are preparing for those sessions and you never know what you're going to get, what do you do? Take a deep breath. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Look, I actually, it's my favorite part of the job. It's so human. Like I, and maybe it's naive, but I so do think that even the naysayers in that room are not coming to this conversation from a place of evil. I think one of the main jobs as a facilitator is to come to the room from a place of empathy and really trying to understand their story. So as much as I'm trying to teach these men, these leaders around how gender norms are socialised and in really small subconscious ways over a lifetime, I understand that that too has informed who they are as a person and, and their views. So I think coming to that room from a place of empathy immediately disarms any sense of confrontation. It's actually about trying to get to the same place. What concerns did you have going into those early sessions? Because I know I had a lot. Mm. Um, you never seem to have the same degree of concern that I had. But did you have any? Yeah, I think I thought it might be more confrontational than it has been. I've been kind of surprised, I guess, by how much willingness there is to learn. I think we immediately create a space that's really new to these men. Like this is a tricky topic to talk about, I think, socially in any situation to bring up gender equality as a middle-aged white man. There's so much trepidation in the room. There is so much fear they're going to get cancelled, say the wrong thing. So many of them don't even know whether they can mention gender equality to their team for fear of doing wrong. And so I think they kind of have this light bulb moment where they go, oh, I can ask all the dumb questions that I've been too scared to ask all this time. And so I've been kind of surprised by the level of openness there has been in the room to that. That said, it's not always the case. There's, there's been some hard nuts to crack. I think we've got there with all of them, but... I mean, I can give you an example. We can um, we can call him Peter. Uh, Peter came very resistant to the concept of this program. He didn't really. He he actually said to me point blank that he didn't think gender equality should be the goal. He didn't think it was realistic. He didn't think the gender pay gap was real. Um, all of that you hear time and time again. And we have a conversation up front about leadership. We talk about 20% of women in this country, 20% um, of CEOs in this country are women, that there are more Peters, Andrews and Johns who are CEOs than there are women. That obviously upsets the Andrews, Peters and Johns in the room. <laughs> They're already <laughs> on the back foot. <laughs> They're already on the back foot, absolutely. Because um, there's like 40 <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah, quite literally. I'd love to look at our registration data. <laughs> Um, and we say, why is that? Why are there less women in leadership? We just have a very open conversation about the barriers to leadership. And, you know, we all know the, a lot of women know the answers to that stuff. There's structural barriers, there's parental leave, there's political barriers. Anyway, John's, what have I called him? Peter. <laughs> Peter says, um, says, well, if you look to animals in the wild, I think you'll find there's a natural biological leadership in men. There's a natural level of testosterone and we're having this very immediate conversation about biology, which is immediately to me just, I just have to take the deepest of breaths, do everything in my power not to roll my eyes and to keep it a really non-judgmental space because otherwise I lose I lose Peter. You lose everyone actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I am the emotional woman who just wants to lecture these men and not actually let them say their piece. 
And so that's that's a big part of it, right? Just yep. <laughs> letting that space exist. And that was hard. But I think it came down to that concept of changing people with hearts and minds. So we came to this, the answer with so much data, so much research. We're speaking to his mind and that's on one level compelling. But we've also got my co-facilitator, who's a man, Tarang, and he's just the most empathetic, lovely man there is. And he comes as the good cop. I'm perhaps the bad cop with all the hard data. And by day two, we're having a conversation about men's mental health and how gender impacts men's rates of depression and suicide. And Peter's in tears. And every time we have someone in tears because there's this realisation, there's this space where they're allowed to understand these concepts and to process them and they've never been able to have that conversation. Yeah, it's it's incredibly powerful and I candidly wouldn't believe it mm. if I didn't have you telling me um, after every two-day course how that unfolded because it unfolds differently every time but mm. it nevertheless unfolds. Mm. How have you come to, do you think, understand or, or understand or I guess live that empathy and that piece where you can be absolutely offended as a young woman by um, some of the things that are said to you in those sessions, but let them wash over you and hear them? Because... When you're young, you're supposed to go, no, and yell and (laughs) storm out. Um, But you're really good at understanding how humans work. How? How did you learn that? Who taught you? Give me the the insight. We're veering on um, counselling probably at that point. I I mean, it's got to go back to like just who my parents are and how they parented. There's just such a high level of – there was such a high level of emotional intelligence in my household and every conversation – you know, they'd see things in the media that totally outraged them, but it was never just a response of anger. It was quite an intellectual unpacking of how they got there, why they they might think that way, what their views are. Ultimately, maybe they have good intentions, but the way they're trying to get to that place is different to how we would. And so that's been my understanding of how people might have different political views, um, really understanding their material life. And, and I mean, that comes from so much privilege in my own life, being able to have the space for those conversations, I guess. Yeah. So in summary, if I'm leading a team stuck on a problem right now, what are the key things you recommend that I do to budge that annoying challenge that we're unable to resolve? I think let people feel heard. So speak to each of those people involved individually. Give them a space to say their piece. People really settle once they know that you know their story. Just allowing that story to be told takes up so much pressure. And then finding a way to bring those different views into one room, calling the challenge for what it is, calling the divergent views for what they are, and come back to that North Star. Where can you all find some consensus in terms of moving forward? But really making people feel heard, I think, is the most important step. Ruby, thanks so much for sharing your time today. Um, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you on this podcast for a long time. And uh, I think it's a super valuable conversation. And thank you for all the work you do in this space. (laughs) Thanks for having me. 
This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. <laughs>